Hey, how are we doing? I've missed you guys. Um, I've been MIA for about a month, um, and I've really missed you guys. I miss the students too. Where are the students at? How y'all doing? I, no offense, I did miss them the most. I just have to as the, the youth pastor. Um, I've been MIA for about a month. A month ago, yesterday, my wife and I welcomed our twin girls into the world. And here they are. This is Whitley Jane and uh, Everly Christine. Uh, they are so precious. I'm going to channel all that applause to my wife because she did all of the hard work, but they are so wonderful. Nights are different now. Uh, we get to wake up like so many times every night, and it's super awesome every time. Um, but we are just so, our hearts are overflowing uh, with these two. Um, now, these photos were taken by a photographer who is roaming on the maternity hall, and I'm like, whoa, such a ludicrous business to like go around, take pictures of babies, and then sell them to vulnerable and sleep-deprived parents, right? She could have said, these are $1,000, and I was like, let me take out a loan. I want them, right? Because uh, they did such a good job. But contrary to popular belief, um, they aren't always angelic beings sitting blissfully in a basket. Here's kind of a more realistic video of feeding time between these two. They're kind of crying there. <laughs> they always like to talk back. Um, but we love them. And here's one last photo of me and them. They do enjoy some selfies. Uh, They're just so, so, so sweet. Um, but thank you guys so much for giving us the space to figure out, uh, at least for a month, what parenthood is to a degree. Um, it's been such a joy uh, to kind of navigate that, and it's even, you know, it's so great to be back here, and we're excited to hopefully bring them out here one day. They're not here today, um, but that is something that we are looking forward to. Um, we felt the love from the church family, too. A lot of y'all reached out, uh, and it's just been so wonderful, and so um, thank you for supporting us uh, on behalf of my wife and I and the twins, so we just appreciate that. Um, I'm glad to be back. So we are starting kind of a mini-series today um, in preparation for the Christmas season. It's called Christmas Stories. And the idea is to figure out how does my life, how does my story intersect with the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus. And so we're going to be in the series for two weeks. But I want to caution us. I want to give us a word of caution. I think every Christmas we revisit the story and our imagination grows dull. Um, because we're familiar with it. We've read this story before. We know what happens to a degree. And so I want to challenge us as a church to enter this story again with new eyes, to allow God to kind of speak new life into this story in maybe ways that we haven't experienced before. I want to challenge us to not let our imagination, our curiosity grow dull because we have been in this place before. So I want to challenge us with that as we jump in. Is that all right? Sweet, awesome, so good. All right, now speaking of stories, I wanted to share a story about a Christmas tradition that my siblings and I had growing up. Um, it, was a, it took place for maybe five years in length, but what would happen is we would wake up on Christmas morning at about 4 or 5 a.m., not lying at all. We would wake up, and since because we were so excited to open presents, like 10-year-old me had a really good relationship with materialism, guys. It was awesome. And so we'd wake up so early in the morning, and we didn't want to wake our parents up, and so we decided, let's watch a Christmas movie. And every year, we watched 
watched the 1983 Christmas Story. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Such a great movie. And so we watched this movie, almost the entire thing, because we were up so early. And uh, we'd watch this movie, and then our parents would eventually wake up, and we'd go and just rip open presents, and it was awesome. Um, But we love this story. We love coming back to the story. I don't know if you're familiar with the premise of it, but basically it's a story of the Christmas experience of a family, I guess in Indiana and Illinois. It's their Christmas experience. And the whole premise of the movie is nothing goes according to plan. Right? Everything kind of falls off the hinges. Everything's kind of chaotic, right? There's a school fight. There's a lamp that breaks. Uh, there's a, a flat tire on the side of the road. And they're experiencing all of these things. And the, the climax of the movie is Christmas Day when Ralphie injures himself with his new official Red Rider carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle. You remember it, right? He injures himself with his rifle and so while his mom is tending to his injury something else then goes awry and it's when Christmas dinner is destroyed I could describe it but I love the movie let's just watch the clip heavy in the house, but it was gone, all gone. No turkey, no turkey sandwiches, no turkey salad, no turkey gravy, turkey hash, turkey a la king, or gallons of turkey soup, gone, all gone. (laughs) All right, everybody upstairs, get dressed. We are going out to eat. I love that movie and I watch that every single year. Now, perhaps none of us have had our neighbor's dogs ravage our Christmas dinner. Or maybe none of us had injured ourselves with a Red Rider BB gun, right? But all of us have experienced when things just don't go according to plan, right? Anyone, anyone resonate with that, right? Um, perhaps it's a trivial thing like, oh, that Amazon gift did not arrive in time. Or maybe there's a flight cancellation and you can't travel like you were planning to. Or maybe the big game is on during Christmas dinner. Like, what gives, right? Um, Or maybe it's much more serious. Uh, Maybe we're experiencing grief when the holidays come around. We've lost a loved one this year and grief has taken on a whole new meaning, right? Or maybe... Um, maybe we're not able to celebrate in the same way because life circumstances are just crazy. Maybe there's family conflict and you can't gather with your family in the same way that you have before, right? We've experienced these things, these interruptions. We're reminded that people are messy. These situations are really broken. And I'm convinced that this movie is super popular, not because it's a classic, but because people resonate with it, right? 
We resonate with experiencing the holidays or experiencing the brokenness of people, experiencing our own brokenness, our own self-sabotage, and we experience these things to a whole new degree. And so I think this movie is honestly so popular because we resonate with it. Life isn't perfect, it's not polished, it's not easy, it's not always simple. And I also think on the flip side, that's why Hallmark Christmas movies are so popular, right? Because they offer you this perfect and polished ending. And I I don't know, I don't know from experience, I only assume that's how they end. I've not watched like really any of them, right? But they offer this like perfectly polished, like everybody's happy, everything's, it's just kind of this alternate reality that sometimes we feel like we can never experience, right? And so I love today's text because I think it's one where God enters the mess. God enters the chaos and God uses the broken people in the story to bring about the kingdom of heaven. God uses the messed up people like us to bring about this Messiah. And so that's why I love this text today, because I think if we read it correctly, if we understand it, I think all of us can and will resonate with it. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, as Matthew, uh, the first text of the New Testament, offers a depiction of what uh, this, this birth story looks like. So let's check it out. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. Y'all still with me? Are we awake? Are we doing okay? This is riveting stuff, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to skip to verse 12 because I think you get the, the gist here. Also, I was telling Jess, I wish we read this before we named the girls because there's so many good name ideas in here. But uh, anyway, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechaniah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. <sighs> And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Amen. Let's pray, right? <laughs> um, y'all know when you were young and you got that Christmas gift that you really didn't like, right? But for the sake of the gift giver and for the sake of your parents, you really had to sell it that you liked this gift, right? Like, I feel like Matthew's the gift giver and he worked really hard to prepare this genealogy. And I'm like, Matthew, oh, like, you shouldn't have, right? <laughs> like, oh my gosh, it was so kind of you, right? Like, no one woke up this morning thinking, I hope that Christian reads us a genealogy right? 
No one was looking forward to that. In fact, if we're being honest, I think we might ask the question, Matthew, like, what are you doing? It seems like you're wasting precious biblical real estate with what seems to be an irrelevant, a tedious, and almost an annoying genealogy, right? Like when I read that, that's the, the honest feedback that I think, right? Yet, yet if we read this in the first century context, that would be far from the truth. There'd be no better opening for the New Testament than this genealogy, should we read it in the time that it was written. So let's try and put it into context here. What Matthew is doing is he's writing this to an audience of Greek-speaking Jews, right? And he's trying to convince them that this guy, Jesus, from the podunk town of Nazareth is the real deal. He's the guy that you've been waiting for, right? There's a lot of people that come out of the woodwork and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, but Matthew is trying to convince them this is the guy. This is the Messiah, right? Because if you rewind to the Old Testament, what we have is that the story of, it's the story of Israel, which basically the Old Testament, uh, to summarize it, you should definitely still read it, but it's the story of Israel's relationship with God. And Israel, time and time again, is unfaithful, yet God remains faithful every single time to Israel, right? And so somewhere in the storyline, God makes a promise to Abraham and then later on to David that God will establish his kingdom through a king who will come through the royal line of David, a descendant of Abraham, right? And so you see the connection here. He's, he's saying the messianic figure will come through the line of David and Abraham. And this figure, this person's going to save not only all of Israel, not only redeem and restore them and, and kind of help us usher back to this Garden of Eden state. He's not only going to save Israel, but he, this messianic figure, is going to save the whole world, right? And eventually what happens is hundreds of years pass by. God makes this promise to Abraham and David. Hundreds of years pass by. I'm not a very patient person, guys. <laughs> um, hundreds of years pass by and nothing. Nothing happens. In fact, the story just gets worse for Israel. They're, they're not faithful to God, and so they experience an exile in Babylon, and things just continue to deteriorate. And so you'd think maybe at that time that you'd start to question if God was being faithful. Like, you, you made a promise, and you're not holding true to your word, Right? It's against this backdrop that Matthew is writing this genealogy. And notice the presence of David and Abraham in this genealogy. Really important figures, right? Jess and I, like any new parents, are reading a bunch of books and we're convinced that maybe they'll make all of our parenting woes go away, right? We know they won't. Um, and so we're reading this one book that talks about like how babies just have the innate ability to effectively communicate with you. All they have to do is scream or cry and you will literally move yourself out of a warm bed to their beck and call, right? Um, and so two nights ago, um, we were sleeping. It's like one of those sacred moments like the house is quiet, the babies are sleeping. And then out of nowhere, like I'm not, I'm not, I can't overemphasize how terrifying this was. Out of nowhere, Everly goes from zero to 100, just screams, like glass-shattering screams. And both of us were up, like, so quick by the bassinet to figure out what was going on. She was fine, by the way. She just does that, I guess. Um, <laughs> and so we run over to the bedside to figure out, oh my gosh, like, what is going on? 
Matthew opening with this genealogy would have captured the reader's attentions in the same way. They would see that he's tracing this from Abraham. We know who he is. God made a promise to him. Oh, and there's David. God made a promise to him. And so this would capture their attention, maybe like a baby screaming in the night. And when understood correctly, this should capture our attention. I know none of us are probably huge into genealogies. Maybe some of you have done Ancestry.com, but this should capture our attention if we understand what is going on because what he's doing here is he's connecting the person of Jesus, which everybody would have seen. Everybody would have seen this Jesus figure because Matthew's writing this after his time here, right? Everyone would have recognized and remember, oh yeah, Jesus, the guy who did those teachings and the miracles and died on the cross and came back to life. Everyone would have remembered him. And so what he's doing is he's tying this person of Jesus back to Abraham and David. He demonstrates Jesus' legal claim to the messianic role by tracing his royal lineage in detail. And this is the first thing that opens up the New Testament, right? But more importantly, he's demonstrating that God is not a liar. That God is not a liar. That God will continue to uphold his promises. That God is not absent. I know... A lot of times, depending on life situations, we might think, uh, God's absent, right? That God has not forgotten you, and that God is not far off, right? He's demonstrating that God is still faithful regardless of your story. God's still faithful regardless of what you're going through. Do we believe that for us today, right? Because every time we celebrate Christmas, whether we're like really into it or not, that's kind of what we're declaring that God has come to the world and God has made a promise and God will hold true to his promise, right? But do we, do we actually believe that? Do we, do we live like that, right? So what Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to make the point that God is keeping his promises regardless of our story. And he's trying to make a case here for both his ancient audience and for us today that God is faithful, right? Makes the genealogy come alive a bit more, right? And God's faithfulness to us more often than not appears in ways that we don't expect. I like to know what I'm going to get. Like when I go to a restaurant, I want to really know what I'm going to get. So I always get the same thing every time um, because I know exactly what to expect, right? And sometimes I try and project that uh, practice on God. Like, God, I'd like to know the plan from A and B. Like, can you just give me some holy blueprint from heaven just to understand what you're doing? However, God doesn't work like that, right? It'd be so easy uh, to not have faith if God just gave us all the answers. And so God doesn't always work like that. God often works in ways that we just don't expect, and honestly, that are far better than anything we could conjure up. And so what happens is uh, Matthew continues in the story, detailing that God is fulfilling his promises. He's not forgotten you. He's remaining faithful. He's just fulfilling them in ways that you could never imagine. And the story continues in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. 
for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what, the, what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Now, Jess and I have been parents for a little less than a month. Um, when, uh, or I guess a little over a month, yesterday. Um, when I, uh, the first night, it was like a wave of anxiety because uh, I had never held a baby. <laughs> I had never changed a diaper. I had like zero experience. I was like anxious around these small humans, right? Um, I would never think, or I would never, if I could come up with the plan of how God is to work, I would never think to pick a baby to be the messianic figure that comes into the scene, right? If I'm a, an ancient Israelite and I'm aware of the promises that God made to me, I would never expect or I would never peg God to bring about this plan in the form of a baby, right? Of a baby fleeing genocide in what was a very difficult situation. I would never come up with that situation because guess what? Uh, I've been a parent for a month now. I know that all babies do are they sleep, they eat, they fill their diaper, cry, and, and, and that's it. They repeat that like over and over, right? Uh, that's kind of the rhythm right now in this newborn stage. So I would never think that the best way to bring about this promise is through a baby. None of us would come up with that plan. And so we have to remember that this did not meet their expectations as it doesn't meet ours. Like I can imagine if God was bringing the story about today, I'm sure, I'm, I'm convinced, and I don't want to be convinced, but I think the church might miss a lot of it because it just doesn't, it goes beyond our expectations, right? And so we're reminded that God is faithful, but we have to remember that God is not faithful to our expectations, he doesn't need to be. But God is faithful to fulfill the promises that he has given us, and usually they unfold in ways that are far better than anything we could imagine. But Matthew's trying to make this point that God is faithful, and oftentimes his faithfulness unfolds in unexpected ways. And so he's saying the Messiah is here, the promises are true, he's connected to Abraham and David, he came about in an unexpected way as a baby, and then in verse 21 he says, this is what the Messiah is here to do. In verse 21 it says, she will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Save us from our sins. All this took place to fulfill what, he had, uh, what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Once again, look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel. Names are a pretty significant thing, right? For both our day and age and for thousands of years as we see here, right? For a brief moment during the World Series, I was thinking in my head, maybe we can change one of the names of our girls to Harper, for Bryce Harper, right? right? But I didn't think that, I didn't ask my wife that, because that could have gone south. Um, you could let me know, Jess, what you think. Um, names are a significant thing, right? We don't arrive at names whimsically, and the case is the same in scripture here because it carries so much meaning, right? And so here, the name 
that they give this baby prescribes not only who he is, but what he's here to do. And so Jesus actually means Yahweh saves, right? And the original language is Yeshua, or it's very similar to Joshua. That's where the name Joshua comes about. Yeshua, and it means that Yahweh saves. That's what Yahweh is here to do. That is what Jesus is here to do. He is here to deliver and rescue everybody, right? Just like the prophecies said, he's fulfilling his promises. And then Emmanuel, which uh, ends this passage, Emmanuel specifies who this Jesus is. And some versions actually include the definition. It means God is with us. God took on a body and entered humanity, entered the mess, entered the brokenness to reside amongst us broken people. God is with us. He's fulfilling his promises. So God is here to save, and God is with us. But I think the problem, if I'm being honest, is we've, we, we, in the church world, uh, we say these things often, and they lose their meaning, right? We're like, yeah, I know, God's here to save. Like, I know God's with us, right? We've heard it before, and our curiosity grows a bit dull. And I think there's two maybe reasons why we forget it. One, we've heard it before, right? Uh, all the time at church, not even around Christmas, we say Jesus is our savior. He's the one who's come to save us from our self-sabotage, our brokenness, and our subscribing to a way of life that doesn't actually lead to life. Jesus is here to save us from that. It's like when you go to Chick-fil-A and they say, oh, it's my pleasure. At some point, you might ask, is it really? Like, <laughs> is it really your pleasure? Because you say that quite a lot, right? We start to question the authenticity of it. And I think the same applies. Like overexposure leads to underappreciation. We hear all the time, yeah, Jesus is here to save. But does that actually sit with us? Do we resonate with that? Do we understand what that means for our lives? That Jesus saves, right? All the brokenness, like he has promised to, not today, but one day, fully restore all of that. Do we, do we believe that, Right? And then the second reason why I think we miss this, that we don't understand the, 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 the capacity of what is happening here is that we've misunderstood God, right? We put our own expectations on what God is supposed to do in our lives. And so we think, um, well, so he's here to save us from self-destruction and from ourselves and our selfishness and sin. Um, but oftentimes we think God is here uh, to make life comfortable, that, uh, that he's here to make life easy and convenient. Like, God, why is my life stink right now? Like, you're supposed to be making this easier. I became a Christian. I tithe. I go to church. Why is life still complicated, right? We think God's job is to make us happy, right? God's, not, God's job isn't to do those things. If we want those things, we just shop on Amazon, right? We go to Amazon. We buy. It's convenient. makes life easier. It's amazing, right? That's not what God's here to do. He's actually here for so much more than just making us happy or making life easier, convenient. To think that that's why God's here, such a small view of what God's trying to do. And so we're reminded he's here for so much more. It's actually to save us from ourselves, to save us from the brokenness that we so easily subscribe to. He is here to save, and that's what we get in the name of Jesus. He's here to be present with us, to invite us into a better way of living, uh, and to, to experience life in a way that we couldn't on our own, right? 
I think we also grow in appreciation for this, um, this reality that we are needing saved when we realize how broken we are, right? Like, like if I had cancer, I would appreciate, like if I knew the, the, the detriment of my sickness, I would be much more appreciative of the doctor for the work they're doing. I would have a much better perspective for the work that they're doing. But a lot of times we don't like to think that we need fixing, right? No, I'm, the, I'm the same way sometimes. Uh, we don't think that we need healing. We don't think that we need saving from anything. In fact, one thing that we do, especially in the church, we've got to confess this, is that we point at other people and say, well, they're far worse than me, right? Look at what they're doing. But I kind of liken it to this. Like if sin is cancer and we all have it, it's like saying their cancer is worse than mine. But guess what? You still have it, right? It's still, it's still not a good prospect. And so in order to appreciate what God is doing, what God's inviting us into, we have to come to terms with, man, I am broken. I am selfish. I think being a parent has really brought these things out in me. I'm like, oh man, I'm not as patient as I thought I was. Or I'm not as, uh, as easily inconvenienced as I thought I was, right? We have to become aware of our own brokenness. And that's not a bad thing. There's no shame or guilt in that, but that's where freedom lies. Because we give that to Jesus, and Jesus takes care of it, right? We have to grow aware of where we're at. And Jesus meets us there, and he still saves us. He's still faithful, regardless of our story, regardless of our brokenness. He's meeting us in that brokenness. In fact, um, I think Jesus uh, intentionally is close to the broken. He associates with the broken. Like, right, usually in life today, if someone made like a bad decision, I'm like, oh, I gotta distance myself from them. I don't want like any of that, you know, draw back. But Jesus is like, no, I'm gonna get close to those who are broken and messy. And we see this in the genealogy. We'd actually be remiss if we thought the genealogy was just a list of names. It's not. It's a list of stories. Any Israelite or Jew reading this genealogy would know all of the stories tied to these individuals. And actually, they'd be quite shocked at who Matthew included in this genealogy. So let's, let's actually look back. Matthew takes an interesting approach. He includes people in this genealogy um, that typically— you would not include in ancient Jewish genealogies. He includes women in the genealogy. Usually you don't do that because the lineage goes through the head of the house, which was considered the man, right? He included people who were outsiders. He included people of very questionable character, right? So let's look at some of the names, right? Um, again, women, ancestry wasn't traced through them, but he had included them, uh, including Ruth and Rahab. They were Gentiles. They weren't even Jews, yet Matthew includes them in this Jewish genealogy. There was Tamar, who was a liar. Um, there was Rahab. She was a, a prostitute. And there was Bathsheba, who was an adulterer. Um, these were women, individuals of questionable character. But then there's also men, of course, who have very questionable character. There's King David. He was a liar, a murderer, and an adulterer, and he's included. There was uh, the king Jechaniah, the king of Judah, and he was renowned as being terribly evil, that his offspring were cursed, is the idea that we get in the scriptures, right? And even Joseph had a moment. Even Joseph, when he found out that, um, that Mary was pregnant, what did he want to do? He wanted to divorce her. They weren't even married yet, but the scriptures say he wanted to divorce her. Engagement was just like, almost just like marriage. Had he divorced Mary, the lineage would have been broken, right? Because he was the last kind of male figure in the line. He had to be married with Mary so that by law, 
Jesus was connected to the lineage. So had he gone through his, with his inclination to not marry Mary, it would have broken it. So he had his moment of doubt, a fear of anxiety, right? Yet he's included. And on and on it goes. The Bible's not filled with sanitized stories. It's full of messy, messy people. And Matthew notes that God uses each one of these people to bring about the kingdom of heaven. Broken people to bring about the Messiah, right? We should resonate with that. Like usually what people do is they dig up dirt on your family to make you look bad. But what Matthew's doing is he's digging up dirt on Jesus' family to show us how good Jesus is, that he associates with the broken. He associates with the messy because that's how he's going to redeem it. And that's how he's going to restore it, right? He's demonstrating God's grace in a really scandalous way. That this lineage is comprised of men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles. And Jesus is the savior of them all. There's a pastor that I really enjoy listening to. His name's Rich Velotis. And he says it this way, out of the mess came a Messiah. And isn't that true? In the form of a baby, in unexpected ways, God is bringing out um, this Messiah to change the whole world, not only to save Israel, but to save all of us from our own brokenness, right? Isn't this what the Christmas story is about, right? I celebrate every year. We go through some of the traditions. It's that God is so faithful. He enters the mess, and he keeps his promises regardless of our story. God keeps his promises regardless of our faithfulness or faithlessness. God is always keeping his promises, and that's what Matthew's trying to get these early Christians to understand as they experience persecution and all of these things that distract them from following Jesus. He's trying to say, hey, this is the guy. This is the promise come to life. God is still here doing incredible things. Don't miss this. And I think that's what he's inviting us to today. I want to finish with a story. Um, so uh, recently, Jess and I moved to Downingtown because we were living in a small apartment and we found out we were having twins. <laughs> so we moved to, uh, we're renting a home in Downingtown right now. But right down the street from us is this restaurant called Leone's. So good. Their cheesesteak, guys, is so amazing. Best one in Downingtown and their garlic knots are out of this world. But I'm not here to talk about food. Um, <laughs> Leone's, this restaurant. So usually we do takeout. They're right down the street from us, so we, it's convenient just to do takeout. But um, a couple times we've actually dined in. And one time we were dining in, we we're hanging out, and uh, I hear someone dropped a fork or some silverware. And then it was like suddenly right after that, I heard this loud sound of applause. Uh, and I was like, oh, like the game must be on. It must have like scored or something. Um, so I didn't really think much of it. Uh, and then later on in the meal, I was the culprit and I accidentally dropped my fork. And then all of a sudden you hear applause. <laughs> like, wait, what? And then eventually it happened again. So, so what happened was they weren't applauding for the game, but when you're at this restaurant, apparently you throw your silverware on the ground, they cheer for you. Like they, they clap. It's kind of backward and confusing. And I'm like, what is this place? What have I stepped into? Like I feel safe now that I could drop my silverware and experience no guilt and no shame. I could drop my silverware at Leone's, like a, such a safe place. And you might think that I'm overthinking it, but that's what sleep deprivation does, guys. Um, <laughs> I was at Leone's. It's a place 
that doesn't shame or, it's a very simple illustration, but it's a place that doesn't shame or guilt you for dropping your silverware. But in fact, in exchange for that, it offers joy, life, and forgiveness in the way of our mistakes. It's a place that doesn't encourage or celebrate brokenness. They're not going around at each table like, hey, do you want to throw your silverware down on the ground today, right? They're not doing that. But what happens is they're, they're not celebrating the brokenness, but they sure aren't condemning you or making you feel shame or guilt for your brokenness either. It's silverware. It offers the only thing that can actually transform your brokenness, and that is grace. They offer the only thing that can transform your brokenness, that can heal you. It's not a lecture on how to not drop your silverware. It's not a video demonstration on how you can keep it on the really small tables, right? They offer grace and applause like, hey, we are glad you're here. Stay with us, right? And you feel no shame or guilt. This is the way of Christ. When we bring our mess forward, whatever the mess Jesus does not condemn or shame us. He doesn't disassociate or neglect us like maybe some people in our lives might, right? No, he offers us the only thing that can transform our mess and brokenness, and that's grace, right? Like, is that not what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas, right? Because he is Jesus, he is the Messiah, God with us to fulfill his promise to redeem and restore all things that are broken. And that's what he's here to do. And we get that picture clear as day, not only in this lineage, but this account of what he is here to do. We're going to bring the band up, but I want to ask the question, what if this could be that place where people could bring their mess and their chaos and their brokenness and encounter grace, right? I, I, I want to say this, that this is not a place for perfect people. And if you are perfect and have your life together, you're going to throw off our vibe here at the CLC. We are a place of imperfect people confessing our brokenness because we understand that there's a Messiah, there's a God who loves us despite all of that, who's faithful to us despite all of that, and wants to save us from all of that, Right? We want CLC to be a place where people can drop their silverware. And we say, hey, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you feel safe enough to bring your mess here. We drop our silverware too. (laughs) We don't have our act together as well. We are in the same boat, but guess what? We are on a boat that celebrates Jesus and recognizes that we could never save ourselves, but that he can. That's what Christmas is about. That's what these stories are about. And so, if you're ashamed of your story, if your story is an imperfect one, which it should be all of us, right? If you're discouraged by your story, if you think, oh, if they knew my story, I wouldn't be welcome there. If you think that, then this story that Matthew's sharing is for you. It's for us. Matthew reassures us that God keeps his promises regardless of our story. God forgives us regardless of our story. God pursues us regardless of our story. And this is the essence of the Christmas story. This is what we remember and celebrate every year. It's that God is with us, and he's here to save us. He's here to redeem and restore the mess in me. And so as we go from this place today, as we sing this last song, I want us to consider that the Christmas story isn't just a story, but it's our story. How do we participate and live in this story? Do we just like kind of read it once a year uh, and then say like, oh yeah, Jesus is here to save, and then just kind of forget that, right? Like, Is this our story that is informing and shaping and molding us, right? 
The second thing I want to challenge us to remember is that this isn't just CLC's story, but this is the world's story. And there are millions of people who have not tasted this grace, who have not experienced a place where they could bring their mess and be loved despite it, right? This is the world's story. We have a great opportunity to show people this story. And I'm not saying you have to invite them to Christmas Eve here. Just invite them to Christmas Eve. Just do life with them. If you want to bring them here so they encounter the story, great. If you want to bring them to another church to encounter the story, awesome. But millions of people, even around us, have not experienced this grace. This isn't just our story, but it's the world's story. So I want to challenge us this season. May it not just be like another Christmas season where we go through all the traditions and the rituals, but may we enable this story to make us come alive, to speak into how we engage with our neighbor, and then may it enable us to continue to bring our mess to Jesus, knowing that he is redeeming and restoring us. Amen? Amen. So we're going to finish with a song that... um, that I really like. It, the first verse, actually, can we put the first verse up there, if you don't mind? Uh, it says, we've heard the revival stories of ancient and old-time glory. Spirit of God can do it again. We've heard all these ancient stories. We just read about them in this genealogy. Sometimes we think those are stories back then, but surely they can't apply to me today. No, they can. We just have to participate in it. And so as we sing this song, let's really declare that we've heard those stories and God, Spirit, we are asking you to do those things again. That we're going to bring our mess to the table and knowing that you are faithful regardless of my story. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good and gracious God. If we could just sit and recognize that and understand that, it would change everything. And so, God, I pray that as we sing this song, as we journey through this Christmas season, As we go through our normal rituals and traditions, may we slow down enough to be reminded that you are so faithful, that our circumstances don't prescribe how faithful you are, that even though life can be chaotic, we can still be assured and we can still trust that you are a good God who has our best interests in mind and that you will, you will deliver on your promises. So God, we thank you for the season that we can recognize and celebrate what Jesus has done. We pray that this would continue to infiltrate us every single day as we uh, invite others into this story as well. So God, we love you. Thanks for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can stand with us as uh, we worship.
That's our prayer, that these wouldn't just be ancient stories, but that we could actually participate in what God is doing today. CLC is a place where you can drop your silverware. This is a place where everybody's welcome. In fact, perfect people, no offense, not welcome here. Um, We want to participate in what God is doing. He draws close to those who are broken, and so we're all a really, really good candidate for that. Amen. Um, I want to send you guys off uh, with a blessing. May the peace and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, both as a baby and as a crucified and risen Messiah, go with you always and forever. Amen. We love you guys so much. You guys have a good week. I miss you